Keep your Bibles open to 2 Timothy chapter 1, so just keep your Bibles open there as we're going to be going through uh, 2 Timothy today. I was really blessed. We sang that song, Is He Worthy? And it was a real blessing to me, um, primarily because many times when I say, okay, what are we going to sing for worship, right? I seek the Lord and say, what are we singing? And as we were singing it, I was reminded, wow, this really fits into the title of today's message, which is, by the way, what is Christ worth? What is Christ worth? Webster's Dictionary defines worth as the value of something measured by its qualities or by the esteem with which it is held. We all attach worth worth to most things in life. We attach worth to our family. We attach worth to friends. We attach it to assets like cars and homes and jewelry. We attach worth to dress and fashion, to our education, to our positions and our vocation. The worth we attach to objects drives our actions to those objects. Could we agree with that? How much we think something is worth determines how we approach those items. If something is of less worth, well, we don't tend to worry about it, right? How many of you are going to search the street high and low because you dropped a penny? You know, not many of you, right? You're going to go, oh, you're not even going to notice it. You're going to go, oops, I, I lost a penny. But if you lost a $100 bill, it'd be a little bit different, right? Because we esteem more worth to that $100 bill. The more worth we ascribe to something, the more concern or security or contemplation we put into protecting that object. I, for one, place a premium on my family. Therefore, I will do all in my power to protect my family. Some people feel that way about their homes. The more we esteem the worth of an object or someone, the greater risk we take to protect that object or that someone. The more we desire that object, the more we become obsessed with that object. So the question we have to ask ourselves today, and we have to ask ourselves today truthfully, is what is Christ worth? What is Christ worth? Jim Elliott, I don't know if that rings a bell with any of you, but Jim Elliott made this great statement. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Jim Elliott was a missionary, wasn't so well known, 1950s. Um, He grew up in a Plymouth Brethren church and attended Wheaton College. Billy Graham attended Wheaton College. Back in the 50s, he attended Wheaton. When he graduated, he became a missionary. He went to Ecuador, and his whole purpose was to reach the indigenous Indian tribes of Ecuador, those who had never heard the gospel, those who had never been part of the gospel. He sought to reach them, right? The thing he was most known for in his life was he had such a strong desire for people who did not know Christ to come and know Christ. And his desire led him ultimately to his martyrdom. And the martyrdom of his four friends who were with him, Ed McCauley, Roger Uterin, Pete Fleming, and Nate Saint. And they died at the hands of the very people they were trying to reach. These Ecuadorian tribes had been, uh, shell oil had been trying to move into those areas, and they were attacking the people of shell oil, so they had a distrust And they thought that these missionaries who were reaching out to them were really agents of shell oil. So therefore, they planned an attack where they killed them at the tip of the spear. It's an interesting thing, too. All of them were armed with sidearms. And as they were being attacked, no one drew a sidearm except for one person. And he did that only to fire a warning shot, hoping that it would scare away these indigenous people. Now you know why Jim Elliott would be able to write, and they found that it's in a little postcard, a a little diary entry he wrote just shortly before he was killed. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain which he cannot lose. 
Another person that comes to mind is Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Some of you may know who Diedrich Bonhoeffer was. Diedrich Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran uh, minister during the 30s in Nazi Germany. He was an outspoken critic of the Nazis. And he was an outspoken critic of the complicit church that would not speak out against the Nazis. Diedrich Bonhoeffer in 1943 was arrested by the Nazis. One of my favorite quotes that he writes from the book, The Cost of Discipleship, is this. Cheap grace is preaching forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without a cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living incarnate. In 1943, as I mentioned, he was arrested by the Nazis. He was sent into a concentration camp. And then in April of 1945, about two and a half weeks before the war ended, he was hung by the Nazis at age 39. Why would both these men, these young men, we would say that they were in the prime of their life, why would both of these men give their lives for a gospel of Jesus Christ? And I think the answer is very simple. Because they believed that Christ was worth it. You know, from, AD, from 67 A.D. through 303 A.D., Rome unleashed 10 official government-sanctioned persecutions against the Christian church. It's estimated that during that time, over 2 million Christians were killed. Beginning with Nero, who killed Paul, and he killed Peter. And Nero would go get Christians, and he would round them up, he would arrest them, and he had heinous ways of killing them. He was the first to really feed them to the lions, to, to do the gladiator games, and all the other different uh, things that you've heard about. But over the period of time, the church grew. It continued to grow. And over that period, from 67 A.D. to 303 A.D., 2 million were killed for their faith. Now think about something. 2,100 years later, the Church of Jesus Christ is still here today. The Church of Jesus Christ is still here today. And they have, they have tried communists, dictators, Nazis, Muslims, you name them. They have all tried to extinguish the church. But we are still here, and i got a bulletin for you all. We will be here until the Lord Jesus Christ returns and takes out the last believer. So the church is never, don't listen to the stuff you hear on the news. Oh, the church, Christianity is dying, all this other different stuff. Baloney. Baloney. Denominations are dying. Formalized, traditional Religion is dying. But for those who are born again, who are saved in Christ Jesus, the church is actually growing. That's what's actually happening here. So consequently, we need to ask ourselves why. One reason is that God in His sovereignty and His providence has protected His Word. Absolutely, without a doubt. God in His providence and His sovereignty has indeed protected the Word. How do you protect the Word? Through the church, through the people who preach the Word, through the people who teach the Word, and the people who love the Word. The others is that Christians throughout the centuries have considered the worth of Christ and the worth of the Gospel and have come to a conclusion that Christ is indeed worth it. We would not be here if people before us did not hold to that truth, that the sufferings that they endured were worth it. And when we talk about it being worth, we talk about worth everything. Their reputations, their vocations, their freedom, their wealth, their families, their possessions, their health, their comfort, their ease, their pleasure, and even their very lives. Revelations 12, 11 speaks of some of these people, and it describes them in the scene in heaven. And it says, And they overcame Him because of the blood of the Lamb 
and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even to death. They did not love their life even to death. The Christian church today needs to answer the same question. What is Christ's worth? As a shadow of persecution looms over this land, look at Canada. Millions of churches cannot meet today because of government sanctions and government shutdowns and, and the government, you know, I just read an article my sister Nancy sent me the other day of a church that the government seized. They seized it. They said, you can't have your church back and if you want it, go to court and pay all the fines, but you guys are a threat in an area where 588 people have COVID in Ontario. They've never had a COVID outbreak. Nobody's ever died from COVID. They never had any of these different things. But they will not allow them to meet. And by the way, if you don't do this already, please make it a practice. Pray for our brothers and sisters across the world who are being persecuted. Read an article this week that in China, China has installed 580 million camera pods throughout the streets, particularly in neighborhoods with churches, to do facial recognition of Christians. And China has developed a complex social index score. And the lower you go on that score, the less is available to you, like healthcare, renting an apartment, or renting a house, or so many others. And guess who draws the lowest scores? Christians. It is sure that the, the shadow of persecution looms over this land in the United States. We have a godless government and a culture, and, we and it continues to zero in on the church. And the cost of being a follower of Christ, let me, let me share this, the cost of being a follower of Christ is rising every single day. Every single day. We, as believers, need to reconcile in our heart what is Christ worth? What is Christ worth? So today I want to take you through the scriptures. We're going to do a flyover of 2 Timothy. I was talking with Todd before the service. I said, well, we're doing all, the two, all of 2 Timothy today. He goes, in an hour? I said, pray for me, brother. You know I could go on forever with this type of stuff. But we're going to do a flyover because what, was, <clears throat> what is significant about 2 Timothy is this is Paul's last epistle. He's writing his farewell letter. And he's writing it to his beloved Timothy. So whenever a man or a woman is in a position to die, they do not waste time with trivial things, right? I remember as I stood with my, as I was there with my father, as my father was dying, the things he would tell me would be profound things. He didn't say, what was the score of the Yankee game last night? It was profound. He would encourage me and he would rally me on in Christ. So if we want to understand what Christ is worth, what better place to go than to a man who is right before the chopping block, right before the executioner. So as um, you're there in, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, <clears throat> what does Paul say about the worth of Christ? Let's, let's take a look. Take a look at 2 Timothy 1, verse 8. Paul talks about the price he pays. He says, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in the suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. What is his encouragement to Timothy? Now, it's, it's interesting. He's writing Timothy. Timothy is at Ephesus. Timothy is a young man. The church is considerably older than him. He's pastoring that church. It's been written that he was being uh, intimidated. There was the rise, the early rise of Gnosticisms and various schisms within the church. And he writes him to encourage him. And what does he write him? He says, do not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord. The testimony of the Lord is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the testimony of the Lord. And that word ashamed there means to be disgraced. It means to be putting your trust in someone else. Somebody who is singled out. Take a look at our culture today. And I'm not going to talk too much about culture. But it is definitely something that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, chances are you're going to be singled out. And the magnitude of being signal, signaled out 
grows, right? You could be signaled signaled out among your friends and saying, oh, well, you know them. They're, they're, They're kind of religious nut jobs. You know, they do this, that, the other. That's one way. You could be signaled out in your job. Oh, don't, you know, they never go out after work. I I used to, when I used to work, you know, people used to say all the time, hey, we're going out tonight, we're going to hit a few bars, we're going to go here, we're going to go there. I go, no, man, I'm not going. It got to the point that they would say, hey, you don't want to ask him, he doesn't go out. You know, he just stays in his hotel room all day. Praise God for that, by the way, right? But the cost of being singled out is growing rapidly. And rather than be ashamed... Rather than be disgraced, we should take admonition of what Paul said to Timothy. Do not be ashamed. Do not be disgraced of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It kind of comes with the territory. This thing where we, everybody, you know, we're, we're all accepting and, and everybody is like, it doesn't matter what you believe, is rapidly, rapidly, rapidly uh, fading from our society. And we, if we esteem the worth of Christ, we will esteem the reproaches of Christ. Hey, who more than our Lord was despised and rejected of men? The gospel comes with a price. And it is a high price. You hear me say this Sunday after Sunday. It is a high price to be called a Christian. We are not Christians because we're not Jewish. We are not Christians because we're not Muslim. We are not Christians because we intellectually believe in Christ. For as many as believed Him, to them He gave the right to be called the sons of God, even to those who believe in Him. For all who are being led by the Spirit, the Apostle Paul said, these are the sons and the daughters of God. Look at verse 12 at 2 Timothy 1. Notice what Paul says. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. I am not disgraced. I am not embarrassed. For I know in whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Notice the four words that Paul talks about here. Four key words. Number one, he knows. Number two, he is convinced. Number three, God is able. Number four, God guards. Let's let's break that down. Paul came to know. That word to know means to perceive, to understand, to come to reconciliation with. And he came to know Christ by faith. And in knowing Christ by faith, his heart, soul, and spirit was yielded to that truth. If you have come to know Christ, by the Word of God, by the power of God, if you have come to know Christ by faith, then all of our mind, all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our will needs to be yielded to that truth. For Paul, it was very simple. He yielded himself completely and totally to that truth. And in knowing Christ, then that made him convinced. That word, to be convinced, means to be completely and fully persuaded. Persuaded of what is trustworthy. What is trustworthy? Christ is indeed trustworthy. The gospel is indeed trustworthy. Christ was all that Christ said He was. And let me share with you, Christ is all that Christ says He is even if it's not being lived out in many people. My number one driver, the thing that drives me the most, is to come to know God, to come to know Christ, to come to know the Spirit in power, the way the Word of God God says He is. We have a very watered-down version of Christianity, a very watered-down version of the Gospel in this country. But what the Bible says is true. We must believe and conform our actions toward. That's what convinced the Apostle Paul. Paul says, for I know, and I'm not ashamed, for I know in whom I have believed, and I am convinced, speaking of God. And he goes on and he adds another word, that he is able. That means 
describing what is made possible because of the power, and in this case, the power of God. God is able. God is able. God has a power to keep those things which have been entrusted. God is able to preserve us in the face of persecution. God is able to give us the faith to stand. God is able to empower us to believe and to hold firm in the things of God. Paul says here, he says he's convinced, he is able, and the last word that he used here is guard. He says he's going to guard that. And he's going to guard it in the power of Christ that was more sufficient. And that word guard means to have a vigilant surveillance. It, it implies a, a military kind of presence. When a, when a soldier is guarding someone and they're diligent, they're not going to let them escape from their sight. It's also used of shepherds when they were keeping watch over their flock at night. They weren't goofing off. They were making sure they knew where each one of those sheep in the flock were. Paul's statement is that the power of Christ is more than sufficient to guard. What has Christ entrusted to us? Salvation. New life. The power and the person of the Holy Spirit. And consequently, not only has He given those things, but He will also guard them. Will He guard them in times of prosperity? Absolutely. Will He guard them in times of difficulty? Absolutely. Will He guard them in times of disease and illness? Absolutely. Will He guard them as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death? Absolutely. You've heard me say this a number of times. The most glorious experience I think I ever had as a Christian is watching other Christians die. I know that sounds weird, but it really is true. What a blessing. To be encouraged with someone on the verge of death in their faith in Christ. And it's happened to me in numerous times. And their indelible memories etched into my mind to see the faith. I saw it with my dad. I saw it with Dan Garlic. In the end days of his life as Dan was, was, was violently sick and terribly sick. And I saw faith being echoed from his heart. Steady hand being put for someone who's dying to encourage me and say, stay faithful, stay faithful. Finish well is what Dan Garlic told me. Finish well. God is able. That's what enabled the Apostle Paul. Yeah, I suffer all these things. People may think it's crazy. I suffer all these things, but I am able to suffer these things by the very God who saved me, the very God who sanctified me, the very God who justified me, the very same God who in, in, in gave me His Holy Spirit. I am able to do these things because He is able to guard that which He has committed. And the question that we all need to ask ourselves, is that true of us? Is that true of us? Do we know that kind of intimacy with Christ? Are we convinced of His immeasurable worth? Is His love His value? Can we trust Him knowing that He is preeminent in all things? Do we believe that He is able to guard, to keep the things entrusted with us? Take a look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. Paul says this, that Christ came with a cost. Here Paul says, You are aware of the fact that all who were in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. Christ came with a cost. You know, this, this little verse here has spoken volumes to me as i contemplate this verse i say to myself oh my goodness here was perhaps the greatest christian that ever lived here's the mvp of christianity here's a guy that was whipped and beaten and shipwrecked and the list goes on and on lost everything for the testimony of christ and now as he is nearing death what does he have to show for it all who were in Asia have turned away from me. Wait a second, Paul. Wait a second. 
if a church is really true and spirit-filled, it's growing. If a church is this, oh, you, you, have popular, you have one campus here, one campus there, another campus there. If a church is really burgeoning and all these other different things, it's growing. What happened with him? All had turned away. Those who were side by side with him had turned away. They had forsaken the gospel. They had forsaken the truth. They had walked away. As many times I looked from Genesis to Revelation, and I say, how is success measured in the kingdom? And you know how it's measured in the kingdom? By subtraction. It's measured by the loss of things, not the gain of things. And as you look, there's so many times when Christ calls us and He calls us and you go, Lord, I don't understand. Why am I not succeeding? Why am I not moving forward? Why is this not happening? Because Christ calls us so many times to suffer loss for the kingdom of God. Those of you who have gone through terrible suffering, those of you who have gone through terrible trials can testify in the fact that you stood alone in those trials, that there were very few who had come alongside you in those trials, that very few can understand what you went through in that trial, but you can testify today that there was one who stayed in the trial. He was like the fourth man in the fire. He was the one that stayed with you. And who is that? That is Jesus Christ. And he will never leave. He will never forsake and that's what we take with us. There is too much of marketing that has been inserted into the church. Demographic measuring. How are we progressing? How are we progressing? How big you are? How wide? Let me tell you something. All of that means absolutely nothing. My father told me on his deathbed hours before he died. He said, you be faithful to the call that the Lord has put upon your heart. Because on that great day, you're not going to be measured by how many people attend you. You're not going to be measured by how many places you spoke. You're not going to be measured by degrees. You're not going to be measured in anything. The only thing that God will measure you on is faithfulness. Are we faithful? What is Christ worth? You see, there is a correlation between how you esteem Christ and the level of faithfulness you bring to Christ. If you don't esteem Christ, well then that level of faithfulness is going to be much, 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 much less. But if you esteem Christ and you esteem the immeasurable worth, then you can say, Lord, everything that I have is yours, Lord God. It does not matter. You want it, you can take it. It's all yours, Lord. And it gives you the grace. It gives you the strength to press forward. In Christ. Notice that many of those people who had abandoned Paul had made professions of faith, but for some reason unknown to us here, they had turned away. Rather than Paul being popular on the speaker circuit, rather Paul being a famous writer with a cult-like following, Paul became a reproach. Why? Because the gospel is a reproach to men. Acceptance or rejection by people is not an indicator of the spiritual life. Here was the greatest Christian of all time who suffered for the gospel beyond anything we will ever do in our lifetime. Who preached all over the Roman territories. Who opened churches all over. Who was beaten. Who, who was hated by both Jews and Gentiles alike. Suffered many hardships for the advancement of the gospel. And at the end of his life, and the end of his ministry, all he could say is, all in Asia have forsaken me. The same, by the way, would be true of every prophet in the Old Testament, of every apostle, of every follower of Jesus Christ, of every early church follower. And it would be said of the Lord Jesus Christ. Upon his crucifixion, how many... How many were there at the cross of Calvary? A few women and John. Where were all the other boys? They were in hiding for fear of the Jews. And after he rose again, how many were in that upper room? 120? What happened to the 15,000 he preached with? He fed lunch to five loaves and two fishes. What happened, what happened to the 4,000 he fed? What happened to the great sermons he had to get in the boat and push off to sea because the crowd was surrounding him? Where, what happened to all those people? Well, the prophet Isaiah tells us. 
He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hid their faith, so we did not esteem him. But he was bruised for our transgression. He was wounded for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Yes, advancement in the gospel came from subtraction. The gospel of Jesus Christ is rejected by 99.9% of the world. But it does not negate the worth of Christ. It does not negate the worth of Christ. Look at chapter 2, verse 3. The apostle tells Timothy, suffer hardship for me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. His calling to Timothy and to the church is to suffer hardship for the cause of Christ. Look at verses 8 through 10. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not in prison. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. Notice the worth of Christ led to his ability to suffer and to suffer that more would come to know Christ. Paul says he suffers for the church, the body of believers in Christ. He suffers that others may come to Christ. If we truly consider Christ worthy, then we will also enter into that suffering. We will persevere in the faith of Jesus Christ. We will do so in this cancel culture. We will do so in adversity. We will do so when we do not feel like doing it. Why? Because the Spirit of God, as we yield ourselves to the Spirit of God, He will give us the grace. He will give us the strength. Listen, the church exists not for the purpose of giving stimulating theological lectures, not to be servants of the world, not to have a private Christian club. The church exists to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ on earth to believers and to unbelievers. That's why we're in business, to proclaim the glorious gospel. It is not that Christians would come and figure out all these formulas and all these remedies, how to have a nice, comfortable life. We preach, we teach the gospel of Jesus Christ so that men and women would come to a place in their life where they yearn for the fullness of Christ. They yearn for the deep things of God. The minimal require of worshiping the Lord that we claim to love, the minimal religious expression we have is to worship the Lord in person on the Lord's Day. And by the way, that is not the pinnacle of your Christian experience. That is the minimal aspect of your Christian experience. And so we come and we say, Father, help me to discern the worth of Christ. What is He worth? Take a look at 2 Timothy 3.12. Notice this statement that the Apostle Paul makes. And indeed all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, I want to make something clear. This isn't, how do I find out how I could be more persecuted? That's not the purpose of this message. The purpose of this message is to draw us to Christ and say, what is He worth? So in that day... Should that day come upon you? Should that day come upon me? Should that day come upon the church? That we will be able to look inward and say, what is Christ worth? Is He worth this suffering that I'm going through? Is He worth this persecution that I'm being asked to endure? Is He worth enduring and pressing on and being faithful to the end? But there's one thing that is true, and you see this from Genesis to Revelation. Suffering indeed does follow those who love Jesus Christ. It, 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 it just, it's, it's an unavoidable thing. Read Hebrews chapter 11. That's just the Old Testament. 
At the end of Hebrews chapter 11, the writer of Hebrews says, and what more shall I say? And he lists a bunch of other great men of the faith. He says, wandering in caves, destitute, ill-treated, afflicted, whipped, beaten, sawn in two, men of whom this world was not worthy of, wandering in caves, living like homeless people on the street, being rejected. Oh my goodness, you don't believe that? Look at the New Testament. What happened to John the Baptist's ministry? You think John the Baptist stood outside of Herod's house and basically said, you know, Herod, the law says that uh, you really shouldn't have your brother-in-law's wife. That's really not cool. You know, you should really just kind of give up. You think he did that? What did the gospel cost John the Baptist? His head. What did the gospel cost Jesus? His life. What did the gospel call James the Great? His life. What did the gospel cause Peter? Being crucified upside down. What did the apostle, what did it cost the apostle Paul being beheaded? What did it cost Luke being hung in Greece? What did it cost all of the disciples? You know, they always say all of the disciples except John died a martyr's death. But you know, before we all know that the apostle John was sent to the Isle of Patmos, right? And he was sent there. He didn't die there. He eventually comes back and he dies in Ephesus. But do you know before he was sent to uh, before he was sent to the Isle of Patmos, what happened to John? They got so sick of his preaching that he was sentenced to die. You know how he was to die? He was going to be thrown in a vat of boiling oil. And so they bound him hand and foot, and they brought him over to the big cauldron. And they threw him into the oil. And it did absolutely nothing to him. He didn't burn. He didn't scream. I think he conditioned his hair a little bit with the oil. He didn't burn or scream or do anything. That's why he got exiled to Patmos. Well, if I can't burn him, at least I could get rid of him. And if you take a look at the early church fathers and you take it, you take it straight into the 21st century. There is a cost. To follow Christ. Listen, I'm on a daily prayer call, an international prayer call. This is true now, what I'm going to share with you. And we were asked one day to pray for a man in Iran named Ibrahim. The gentleman had just served four years in prison, in an Iranian prison. His crime, he was a Christian. And he suffered greatly in prison. This time, after being out only a few months, the Iranian police came and rearrested him. And they came with some bogus charges. But the real truth of is he's a Christian. And prior to his sentencing, he reached out to a brother who's on that call. Brother lives in the UK, and he has a ministry to Iranian Christians. He's an Iranian of Iranian descent, and so he translates the Bible into Farsi, and he does other great work for the Iranian Christians. Listen, this was right before Christmas. This was his prayer request. Do not pray for my acquittal or that justice may be served. Pray that through my suffering that God will be glorified. This is the 21st century, right now. Ibrahim was sentenced to an indeterminate amount of time in prison. Iranian authorities moved him a thousand miles away from where his family lives so that he couldn't receive any visitors. On the prayer call yesterday, I asked that brother, is there an update on Ibrahim? He said he was released mysteriously. And him and his family fled to Turkey. And they are in Turkey. And you know what he's doing in Turkey? He's starting churches with the Iranians that have fled Iran and are in Turkey. And you know what has happened? I, uh, Turkey has now informed them that they're going to extradite him back to Iran. This is first century stuff happening today. What makes a person give up their freedom and suffer terrible cruelties at the hands of godless men not ask for personal release, 
And all they ask for is that God will be glorified through their suffering. What does that? The answer is simple. They've considered the worth of Christ and they have said, He is worthy. Take a look at 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8. You probably have heard this at some point. This is the Apostle Paul saying goodbye. Shortly thereafter, he would go to the chopping block. Paul tells Timothy, I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also all who love His appearing. What caused Paul to state these words, knowing fully well that in a very short period he would lay his head on a block and be beheaded? He would urge Timothy. Remember I said I want to look at 2 Timothy for one reason. It's the words of a person who is dying. These are the most substantial words. These are the words that you want to impart that is going to produce fruit in another life long after you're gone. What were the words? The words were fight the good fight. Keep the faith. Finish the course. The Apostle Paul knew what Jesus meant when Christ said that He is that very treasure in Matthew 13, 44. He is that very treasure that a man goes away and sells everything he has to purchase that field. He knew that Christ was that pearl of great price that he found and and sold everything to acquire that pearl. You notice the commonality in there? Abandonment. Abandonment. Get rid of it all. Listen, even our Lord Jesus Christ made this statement in Luke 14, 27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me can't be my disciple. How do we carry the cross of Christ? Do we carry the cross of Christ as a piece of jewelry? As an earring dangling on the ear? Do we carry the cross of Christ in our pocket to make sure that as we go through this world, nobody can see the cross of Christ unless there are only those we want to show and go, hey, I'm a Christian. How do we carry the cross of Christ? How do we follow? Do we put other things in front of us and say this is more worthy, this is more important? Listen, many people will consider a Sunday and say, I think I'm going to stay home, it's a nice day, I want to go to the beach. But do you consider the cross of Christ as more worthy to your conveniences and your comforts and your pleasures? Do you consider the cross of Christ more valuable than your homes, more valuable than your income, more valuable? What is Christ's worth? What is Christ worth? We said at the very beginning that if we, if we esteem something as worth, well then we give it more guardianship. We give it more protection. We, we yearn for that thing. What is Christ's worth? Paul believed, by the way, and he said this in Acts 14.22. Paul said this, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Listen, I know these aren't easy words. But they are words nonetheless that we must tackle. In the Christian church, we have to be able to process the good things with the hard things. We must. So, from an application perspective, how does this apply to us? Well, the same standard that applied to the Apostle Paul applies to us. It's the same standard. Christ didn't say, I've appointed the Apostle Paul and all the others to suffer. Christ said, hey, these things are going to follow you. And as Americans and Westerners, Christ doesn't have a different standard for us in the West and in the United States as He does for those Christians in China, in North Korea, 
in the Muslim nations? Myanmar? What do we say to those brothers when we see them on that great day of glory? How we persevered for Christ. We are called every day, every day to count the cost to follow Jesus. Every day we are called to count that cost. And every day we must answer the question, what is Christ worth? Let me share something. And once we answer that question, we need to answer another question. How is that reflected in my life, in my faith, and in my actions? If we say that Christ is worth it, then we must answer the question that the prophet Isaiah asked in Isaiah 55 too, which is this, why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. What do we spend our money on? Where do we spend our time? Listen, all of that stuff doesn't satisfy. It does not satisfy. Oh, there's, there's temporal satisfactions you get from it. But my goodness, what is Christ worth? Ray, Leonard Ravenhill, whom I love, made this statement. You've heard me say it before. Are the things you're living for worth Christ dying for? Are the things you're living for worth Christ dying for? If you love Christ, do you pursue Him? Or is your love for Him a very casual love? You know, it's like ring it up in case of an emergency. If you love Christ, do you obey Him? If you love Christ, do you worship Him? I'm not talking about here in church when there's formal worship, but when you're alone And you glorify. Let me tell you something. Tuesday night on the Bible study was a glorious and a magnificent night. And after going through Romans chapter 7, we kind of found ourselves in a place and there were some questions that were asked that led to a worship of God in the words. In the words. Wednesday night prayer meeting followed the same thing. Just the worship of God. To be still in His presence. To, to bask in His glory. If you love Christ, do you yearn for His presence in your life? If you love Christ, are you willing to suffer for Him? If you love Christ, are you willing to experience shame for Him? If you love Christ, are you willing to let go of the world, its comforts, its pleasures, its possessions, and follow Christ wherever He leads? If you love Christ, are you willing to take up your cross and follow Him? Folks, there's a reason I preach this now. There's a lot of analysis on what's wrong in the church. I hear it every day. I read it on various websites all the day. Oh, the church needs to do this. The church needs to do that. You know what the church needs to do? Come back and, and, and come back and reevaluate. Is Christ worth it? What is Christ worth? The road is only going to get tougher. It's not going to get easier. The road is going to get tougher for Bible-believing, gospel-proclaiming Christians in the West and in America. Our faith is going to cost us something. Being part of a church has changed, and it will no longer be a beautiful building with manicured lawns. I really believe in my heart as things progress. Those are going to be the signs of apostate churches. Because they've gained the acceptance of the world. They gave up something to have that. But the time will soon come when the true church is going to be poor in things, but rich in power and spirit. And let me share, that's the church I desire. And I pray that that's the church you desire. I pray that it's your heart's objective to come to know Christ and to come to know Him deeply. To know the deeper things of Christ. Not that you become pumped up in knowledge, but that the Spirit of God exudes from us. And people say, that person walks with Christ. So how did the Apostle Paul die? 
This is from Fox's Book of Martyrs. Paul the Apostle before was called Saul, after his great travail and unspeakable labors in promoting the gospel of Jesus Christ, suffered also in this first persecution under Nero. Abydos declared that under the execution, Nero sent two of his esquires, Theraga and Parthamidius, to bring him word of his death. They coming to Paul, instructing the people, notice, these were emissaries of Caesar. They came to Paul, and they desired him to pray for them that they would believe. Who told them that shortly after they should believe and be baptized at his sepulcher. This done, the soldiers came and led him out of the city to place of execution, where after his prayers made, gave his neck to the sword. Other historical sources say that when they led Paul out of the Maritime prison, he was unescorted, meaning there weren't soldiers holding him. He was not bound. He walked under his own power, knelt. He asked if he could pray. He knelt down. He prayed. And then under his own power and under his own volition, put his head on the chopping block unrestrained. And they chopped his head off and he went to glory. And if you ask him if he wanted to come back, he'd go, are you out of your mind? No way I want to come back. In the words of Jim Elliot, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain which, that which he cannot lose. So what's your answer? What is Christ worth to you? Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father, we come before you. And I know, Lord, as we're going to gather now before the Lord's table, each and every one of us has to answer that question. What is Christ worth? Lord, we've had many years of so many things in the church. But, oh God, I pray that each and every one of us would come to that place that we would cry, Christ is worth everything. And we would hold nothing back from You. If there are any here, Lord God, who don't know Christ, if there are any here after the preaching of the Word of God, Father, that would say, <clears throat> I don't know Christ in that manner. May they repent of their sins. May they turn to You, cry out to You for mercies, God's sake. Say, God, save me a sinner. And Father, would You enter in and cause them to be born again. And that, Father, Lord, that no one would hold back, that they would share it with us so that we might be able to come alongside them and lead them in the path of righteousness. Now, Father, we pray as we come before the Lord's table that you would sanctify our hearts as we partake of the Lord's table, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.